Does that make sense? We don't want to claim too much, but I don't think we want to dismiss what's there either. And just as a church historian, I would say it wasn't until the day before yesterday, historically speaking, that people began to argue that this meant something else than the one God was also more than one person. That's not been that long. Only the last 100, 150 years that people have made that argument. And I know that's older than anybody in this room. That's even older than Tom. But that's really recent if we're talking about church history. That's the day before yesterday. And I just get nervous about ideas that are only, they've only been around since the day before yesterday. Things aren't right because they're old. But old stuff is normally more right than new stuff especially if we're talking about doctrine. Like all Jews, moving into the New Testament, Jesus believes there is only one God. Yet, Jesus also claims to be God's Son, a claim that is also made by God the Father and affirmed by Jesus' followers. So I'll give you several here. Matthew 22, 36 and 38. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. He's quoting a portion of the Shema when he says that. Jesus is a good Jew. He believes in the one God. What about Matthew 3, 16 and 17? And when Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water. He didn't rinse off that water that had been dabbled on Him. He came up out of that water, and behold, that one was for free. And behold, the heavens were opened to Him, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God from heaven saying, that's my son. And by the way, even though it's not crystal clear, the early church fathers also argued, which I think is at least plausible, that that dove represents the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus. I don't, that's, it doesn't say those words, but I can buy that. That makes sense. Or what about Matthew 16, 15 through 17? Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, No, we're good Jews and we don't believe heretical things like that. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God says, That's my Son. The disciples say, you're God's son. And Jesus says, that's right. That's right. Jesus further claims to be God, one with the Father. Like His Father, Jesus claims to be the divine Lord of Israel, Yahweh, a claim also believed by the earliest Christians. John 1, 1 1-4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Those verses are saying that the Word, who it's clear in context is Jesus, that's who it's talking about, no one debates that, not even our liberal friends. Jesus was with God and was God from the beginning, and all things were made through Him. Jesus is the Creator God, because Jesus is God, and God is the Creator God. Or John 8, 58. So the Jews said to Him, You are not yet fifty years old. You're a youngin. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Jesus was, I am. One of several of Jesus' I am statements. And when Jesus is saying it, He's saying before Abraham was Yahweh. You know why He's saying that? Because they try to kill Him when He says it. They want to stone Him. If He was just saying, in some mysterious sense, I was around before Abraham, they would say, what? That's crazy talk. But Jesus says, before Abraham was, I'm the covenant Lord of Israel. And that's not crazy talk. That's heretical talk for those Jews who are Unitarian monotheists. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many, quote, lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Jesus and the Father being identified with what Jews believe about God. Jesus claims to be the Savior, and who did the Old Testament tell us is the only Savior? God. So Jesus claims to be the Savior the one through whom God saves, and the only way to be saved. And His disciples agree with Him. They affirm that. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 14.6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Romans 10, 9 and 10 and verse 13. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Yahweh and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Both God the Father and God the Son send the Holy Spirit into the world following the death and resurrection of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is also considered to be divine and is identified as both God's Spirit and Christ's Spirit in particular. We have several. John 14, 16 through 17. 
And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. So Father's going to send a Helper. But you will receive, Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Acts 5, 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this evil deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Lying to the Holy Spirit. It's lying to God. Or 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Finally, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are often explicitly linked together in Scripture. Now we've seen they already may have been implicitly linked when Jesus was baptized. Now it's going to be explicit. The Great Commission one of the most Trinitarian texts in all of the Bible. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. This is a benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In context, God probably referring to the Father. Hebrews 2, 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. The Lord in this context is Jesus referring to Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit in the same two verses. 1 Peter 1, 2, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's a greeting at the beginning of a letter. And finally, Jude, verses 20 and 21, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, probably referring to the Father, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This is what the Scripture says about the one God being three persons progressively revealed. Any questions about what the Scriptures seem to be saying before we start talking about what to do with what the Scriptures seem to be saying? Yes, sir. I think I know what you meant, but let me just clarify. So when you say that Genesis 1 only hints at the Trinity, you're saying that exclusive of anything in the New Testament. That's what I'm saying. That's absolutely right. So 
absolutely right. So when I say that Genesis 1, uh, 1 and 1, 2 is only hinting at the doctrine of the Trinity, what I mean is that passage by itself without anything else is hinting that God is in some sense more than one person. It's then when we go to other places in Scripture that we're able to say that's what that means. But from the very beginning, before there was any other information, there was this hint that God was in some sense one and more than one. Does that make sense? Yep. Anybody else? All right, let's talk about the debates. So what has the church said? Well, during the patristic era, about the first 500 years after the time of Christ and the early, earliest apostles, uh, it was dominated by debates about the Trinity. And I give you names in your notes so that you do not have to try to write down funny words. Modalists like... Sabellius, he's the teacher in the third century, argued that God existed in three successive manifestations or modes. That's where modalism comes from at different times in church history. According to modalism, God is always Father, Son, or Holy Spirit but He is never Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They say the Father became the Son who came back as the Spirit. So the one God manifests Himself in three different ways rather than the one God always being three different persons. Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or there is the most famous heretic in church history, Arius, who was a Unitarian. Arius argued that God the Father has always existed, the one God, but the Son is a lesser divine being whom the Father created. And Arius and his followers also just downplayed the Holy Spirit's deity. They didn't do a whole lot with that. Uh, The Holy Spirit was more like the power of God. So he says, and his followers say, that Jesus is divine compared to us. He is so much infinitely higher than us, the firstborn of all creation, misquoting what Scripture even tells us. But He is not divine in the same way the Father is divine. Orthodox Christians challenged these two ideas of modalism and Arianism In their writings, the most important of which was the Nicene Creed, which was written in 325 and revised in 381. The latter edition especially defends Trinitarian monotheism. Uh, We can't say that about the first edition because it doesn't say much about the Holy Spirit. They come back and they add some material about the Holy Spirit, so it's fully Trinitarian. And some of you know this. Some of you have been parts of churches that even maybe recite this as part of the church's uh, liturgy of worship but I'm going to read it to you if you're not familiar with it. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Our Jewish friends would say, Amen. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, 
God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. We might say today of the same stuff of the Father. Through Him, the one Lord Jesus Christ, all things were made. For us and our salvation, He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate at a particular point in time. He suffered and was buried. The third day He rose again according to the Scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living from the dead. His kingdom will have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We talked about that last week. We believe in one holy Catholic, that just means universal, and apostolic church. The C is lowercase. Don't get nervous. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all the one Lord. Now it's very important to understand that the church fathers didn't invent the doctrine of the Trinity. Sometimes that is argued. Sometimes it is argued in a what I'm going to call a pious way, for example, by our Catholic friends who would say it was unclear until the church said there's a doctrine of the Trinity. That's a pious argument. They mean well, it's wrong. It's also argued in an impious way by people who treat this as if it's some sort of power play that there were all these different beliefs about God and the group that won said God's a trinity and they lorded that over everybody else. If you read the novel The Da Vinci Code years ago when that came out, that's the lie at the heart of The Da Vinci Code. If you've not read the novel, don't. It's garbage. But if you did, if you know, you know. It's important to understand they didn't invent the doctrine of the trinity. Even though the word, I've said this already, the word trinity isn't found in Scripture... Early theologians believe the word accurately captures what the Bible teaches about the nature of God. An extra-biblical word to capture a biblical truth. Any questions about these debates? You were ready, you were, you were ready to go. All right. All right. In, in the creed you just read, yes. it says the Son was begotten from the Father. Mm-hmm. does. Explain the difference. Explain the difference. So, the, what's the difference between the Son being begotten and the Spirit proceeding? So, here's how the early church thought about that. Uh, begotten is uh, parent-child language and the way that the Scriptures describe the relationship between parents and children, especially fathers and sons, think genealogies as they use that begotten language. So they're leaning into that biblical language that fathers begat sons. So he is 
eternally the Son of the Father. That's the language that they're trying to get at. The proceeds language, we don't use that word in the same way, but that is sending language. And so the idea is that the Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son. Now I cheated a little bit. And some of you know I cheated because you went to Bible college or you went to seminary. The part about the sending from the Father and the Son was, and the Son was added later. Originally it just said from the Father. But as we saw when we looked at Scripture, the New Testament both says the Father sends the Helper and Jesus says, I'm going to send a Helper. So they came back later and they, they added that. A couple hundred years later, actually about 400 years later, said, no, we want to be clear about this. The Father and the Son are sending the Spirit. So that's the difference there. It's just speaking to or attempting to speak to how the persons of the Trinity relate to each other. The relationship between the first and second person of the Trinity is Father and Son. The relationship between the third person of the Trinity and the first and second is they send Him. Does that make sense? That's what they're attempting to communicate. Because they know this is mystery. They know this is mystery and you can't explain everything, but they're trying to get at the fact that these are persons and persons relate to each other, not three different manifestations. So one is a father and son relationship and the other is uh, this power of God, but far more than a power of God, the power is a person who is worshipped that is sent by the Father and the Son. We're swimming in the deep waters, aren't we? Anybody else? You mentioned the word, I'm going to follow up. Go ahead. You mentioned the word relationship. I did. And I've run across that before mm-hmm. in this subject. Someone said um, that the way they view it is, is instead of begotten as if past tense, it is begetting. It is a continuous relationship. It's a continuous thing. And proceed is similar to proceeding. Yeah. I think most theologians would say that if we want to be technical, because the Trinity is eternal, the Son has always been the Son of the Father. The Spirit has always been the Spirit of the Father and the Son. The past tense language in the creed is not speaking to the eternality of the relationships alone but is also speaking to at a particular point in time, it became clear to us in what we call the New Testament with the incarnation that the second person is the Son because that Son and Father stuff was not there before. That's not in the Old Testament. You know who the Son is in the Old Testament? Israel. Israel is God's Son throughout the Old Testament. So there's this clarity that comes that that relationship is the Son, and it happens, uh, though it is an eternal relationship, the clarity comes at a particular point in time. And then even though the Spirit has always been the Spirit, the sending happens at a particular point in time. So theologians say we're swimming in the deep waters here, and there's a sense in which there's this eternality of relationships, but... We can also say from Scripture that historically speaking, we, don't, we lack awareness of these things until the moment it happens. And Scripture reveals that it has happened. 
It's the best I can do, brother. There are no, there are no perfectly clear, slam dunk, no further questions sort of answers to this because we are, we're in the deep end. So what should we believe? What aren't we to think about this? The one true God whom we worship and serve is a trinity who reveals Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity are fully divine, sharing everything that it means to be Yahweh. Yet, each person of the Trinity is also distinct from the others. The Son is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Son, etc. Furthermore, each person of the Trinity has eternally existed as they exist now. The Father is the eternal Father. The Son is the eternal Son and the Spirit is the eternal Spirit. This is what's most important because everything I just said, I'm repeating things I have said. But don't miss this. The Trinity is not an abstract theory about God or a theological problem to be solved. The Trinity is the one true God who calls upon all people to bow before Him in worship, obedience, and service. I have heard it said this way by various theologians, Trinity is the Christian name for God. Not an abstract theory, not just a problem to work out, this is our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to the praise of His glorious grace. So, if this is true, and it is, how should we live? I have several ideas here. The doctrine of the Trinity, and speaking specifically about understanding the doctrine that we're talking about, not talking about God in Himself, but the doctrine of the Trinity helps us to love God with our minds. The better we understand who God is, the better we are able to worship, obey, and serve Him. Again, simply put, the Trinity is the God whom Christians worship. He is the creator of all things and the only true God in a world of imposters. If theology is thinking rightly about God so that we can live rightly before God, then the foundation for right theological thinking is a right understanding of our triune God. Let me say this a different way. If you reject the Trinity... You are rejecting the Christian God, even if you say, I believe in God. The Maker Almighty of heaven and earth, you are not worshiping the Christian God. Muslims and Christians are not worshiping the same God. Other Unitarians and Christians are not worshiping the same God. Your neighbor who says, I believe in the man upstairs and he probably even created us and he's good 
and we ought to worship him and we ought to like apple pie and mom and the national anthem and hate the commies and vote conservative is not worshiping the Christian God. The only place this gets tricky is with our Jewish friends. What we would say is they are attempting to worship the same God, but they are rejecting the true revelation of who He is, which is a little different than what we would say about our Muslim friends who do not worship the Christian God. Number two, the doctrine of the Trinity reminds us of the importance of guarding the truth. Though no Orthodox Christian rejects the Trinity, I would suggest that Baptists and other evangelicals are often tempted to de-emphasize the Trinity. Much of the West, and I think this includes America, is what I would call culturally Unitarian. We're friendly, I'm not speaking now of Christians, we Americans, Westerners, uh, we are friendly to the idea often of one supreme creator God, but many are hesitant to affirm the full deity of Jesus. And even more are hesitant to affirm the full deity of the Spirit. But I think we even need to be careful as Christians sometimes because sometimes when we say the word God, we really mean the Father. And it's sort of like, well, I worship God and Jesus and the Spirit. We've all done it. Don't deny it. We've all done it. Because we're in the realm of mystery, right? We have to be intentional to avoid being fuzzy whenever we're talking about these things. So here's what I would say, and I want to speak especially to everybody in here who's a teacher. If you're a parent, you're a teacher. If you're a grandparent, I hope you have an opportunity to be a teacher. If you're a teacher, you're a teacher. If you're a disciple or you're a teacher, we must be intentional about being explicitly Trinitarian or we will lapse into becoming implicit heretics, not denying the Trinity, but de-emphasis leads to devaluing, even if unintentionally. And we want to be really, really intentional that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Number three, the doctrine of the Trinity gives shape to our Christian prayer and worship. Though there are a handful of examples of prayers to Jesus in the New Testament, we never want to say that that's wrong. That is especially true with the prayer of faith. Many of you, whenever you prayed to receive Christ, you said, Dear Jesus, save me in some way. So we don't want to say it's wrong to pray to Jesus, but we also want to say that whenever we synthesize what the New Testament teaches about prayer, the normal pattern is that we pray to the Father in the name of the Son in the power of the Spirit. Does that make sense? Nothing wrong with praying to Jesus. Strictly speaking, nothing wrong with praying to the Holy Spirit. We do that occasionally. Holy Spirit, fill this place. But the regular pattern, like Jesus, we pray to the Father in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Spirit. Regarding our worship, 
The doctrine of the Trinity reminds us that while our praise, our praise and adoration may be directed toward the Father or the Son in particular, we, we normally don't praise the Spirit. The Spirit's the shy member of the Trinity. He makes much of the Father and the Son. He doesn't receive our worship in Scripture. While we worship often the Father or the Son in particular, I would urge you, and this takes some training, and I have to train myself to do this, when we're worshiping, I can't think of a way to say this that isn't weird, but when we're worshiping God in the generic sense, what I mean is songs that are just referring to God or the Lord, or prayers that are just referencing God or the Lord, and there's no other clarification, let's train ourselves to be thinking about the triune God of all creation and not just the Father. Because those words, Lord and God, mean the Trinity, except in passages where it's explicitly tied to one member. Does that make sense? But when we're just referring to God generally, or the Lord in the abstract, or referring to God generically, again, it's, it's awkward to articulate, but I think I hope you're picking up what I'm laying down. When we just refer to God, and we're not speaking specifically about Father, Son, or Spirit, Let's think intentionally about the Trinity. We should sing songs, pray prayers, and preach sermons that explain and magnify the Trinity. Because it is not abstract theory, and it is not a problem to be solved. The Trinity is the one Lord of all creation whom we worship and adore and obey. Finally, oh, nope, we've got two more, not finally. The doctrine of the Trinity relates to our gospel advance. Have you thought about this before? When we pray for the salvation, let me say, it, you might be more Trinitarian than you realize. Now, I've said sometimes we downplay the Trinity, but let me talk about how we're often acknowledging the Trinity without realizing it. When we pray for the salvation of unbelievers, we are often praying that the Holy Spirit would move in their lives so that they would believe in Jesus as Lord and, and God would adopt them as Father. It's a Trinitarian prayer, even if we're not thinking about it. When we share the gospel, we're often talking with unbelievers about the, the Father who wants to save them through the power of the Son whenever the Spirit convicts them of sin and, and draws them to faith in Christ when we're talking about being born again. We're often being more Trinitarian than we even realize. So there is a sense in which sometimes we get sloppy and downplay the Trinity, but sometimes we just need to remind ourselves we're talking about the Trinity. We're talking about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, especially whenever we're talking about gospel advance. And then I would just say finally, it's important that we form Trinitarian believers through our teaching, preaching, and discipleship. Many people don't understand or maybe even know about the Trinity when they're first converted. I'm not sure I could have said anything more than God in three persons, blessed Trinity, when I first prayed the prayer. And only then because we sang it in my nanny's church. So we're not saying you have to understand the Trinity to be saved. 
What we're saying is part of discipleship is understanding that the Trinity is the God who saves us. Does that make sense? And so we need to make much of the fact that God is Trinity in our discipleship ministry, what we teach in our life groups. Again, what we pass on to our children, what's taught in youth group and children's ministry in ways that youth and children can understand it. Because what we don't want to do is create functional Unitarians. We want people to know that God is Trinity. It's incumbent especially upon those who teach in the church, those who preach, to help believers understand that God is a Trinity. And if we believe something different than that, we are worshiping a different God. Not if we're ignorant of the Trinity. But if we believe something different, we may be using the same vocabulary, but we have a different dictionary whenever we're talking about who God is. Now, I have some recommended resources. I'm going to mention those, and then we're going to have five or six minutes to chat. Michael Reeves, Delighting in the Trinity. Pastor Jeremy and I were talking about this book last week. This is the best short popular introduction to why the Trinity matters for the Christian faith. If you only read one book on the Trinity, I would encourage you to read this one. In fact, I'm going to go a step further. If you only read one book, I recommend this semester read this book. It is that good. It is wonderful. I love it. I coerce students into reading it, and then they thank me for it. If you want to dig a little bit deeper... Dig a little bit deeper, a little less devotional, a little less make you put on your thinking cap, though it is devotional. Uh, Scott Swain's book, The Trinity and Introduction, is a good one. Another one very similar, Fred Sanders, The Deep Things of, the Deep Things of God. That's probably my second favorite book about the Trinity. Also kind of what I would call semi-scholarly. But what Fred Sanders is really good about is helping us realize that we're already more Trinitarian than we realize. My examples about... Uh, praying for unbelievers and, and sharing the gospel to about being born again. I, I borrowed that from him. He's so helpful with helping us realize that we have Trinitarian instincts in our evangelism and, and our prayer life, even whenever we don't think about it intentionally. My favorite scholarly introduction for those of you who are particularly nerdy is uh, Robert Lethem's The Holy Trinity in Scripture, History, Theology, and Worship. If I was teaching a college class on the Trinity, this is the book that I would assign as like the main textbook. And then recently, Brandon Smith's edited collection, this just came out about three or four months ago, The Trinity and the Canon. This is a scholarly a collection of essays, but more than any other book that's out there. It won all kinds of awards recently. Uh, it focuses on how each book of the Bible talks about the Trinity and what's there and then how does it all fit together and how does that affect our, our worship and whatnot. And, and again, it is a, uh, it's a powerhouse book, definitely deeper, but, uh, but does the best job of any of these books of just going book by book through the Bible. What does Paul say about the Trinity? What does John say about the Trinity? Or sometimes author by author. What does Hebrews say about the Trinity? What does the Pentateuch say about the Trinity? And then how do we put all that together whenever we're talking about God in three persons, blessed Trinity? But there's a lot of other good books. So if you're looking at those and saying, I'm not interested in any of those, I demand you give me another recommendation. 
talk to me privately, and I'm happy to recommend some others. What questions or thoughts do you have about the doctrine of the Trinity, the greatest truth in the universe? Yes, ma'am. When I was young, back in the dark ages, I don't remember there being any preaching or teaching about the Holy Spirit. It was all focused on God and Jesus. Yeah. Has there been a greater emphasis more lately? There has. So when it comes to teaching about the Holy Spirit, I've heard it said, the Holy Spirit is like the red-headed stepchild of the Trinity when it comes to our preaching and our teaching. <laughs> Some of you know that phrase. And, uh, and, and I think that that was the case for the long time. Uh, a couple of different things happened that helped us increasingly recover the doctrine of the Holy Spirit uh, in our churches. One thing is uh, denominations like Southern Baptists and, and our Presbyterian Church in America friends and a lot of non-denominational churches that are Baptist but they don't say that they're Baptist. And, uh, and Bible churches, they just got more serious about Scripture as Scripture was being challenged in the 60s and 70s by theological liberals uh, as they began to wrestle with that, I mean, you start wrestling with Scripture, you're more intentional about teaching it. And they said, you know, we've not taught enough about the Holy Spirit. So there was kind of a recognition that was happening in a lot of churches like ours. The other thing that happened, though, and this won't surprise you, it was in response to the charismatic movement. Charismatic movement begins uh, as we think of the charismatic movement. And people were speaking in tongues and getting slain in the Spirit before that. But it starts to hit churches like ours, not our church, but churches like ours, around 1959-1960. And by the time you get to the mid-70s, it's not just the churches that we think of as Pentecostal churches and Pentecostal denominations. Church of God, Church of God in Christ, Assemblies of God, Church of God of Prophecy. Those folks have been around for about 100 years, a little more than 100 years. But what happened in the 60s and 70s and in the early 80s is you had Baptist churches that started speaking in tongues or Methodist churches that started speaking in tongues or Presbyterian or even Roman Catholic churches that started speaking in tongues. And so when you have, just to give an example that played out in all kinds of churches, this may have happened in Taylor's, whenever you have a Sunday school class where everybody starts speaking in tongues and they're meeting at Brother So-and-So's house on Tuesday night, you know what the pastors start doing? They start searching the Scriptures to see what it teaches about the Holy Spirit. So a lot of that was in response to the charismatic movement as that began to affect churches that weren't part of historic Pentecostalism. Well, we're searching the Scriptures and we're saying, what, what do we think is right about that, if anything? What do we think is wrong about that, if anything? Is it something in between? And it leads to a more robust teaching about the Spirit so that people don't get led astray by what's happening. So both of those things kind of are happening around the same time, and I think there's been a pretty significant recovery of the Holy Spirit. Now, having said that, if I may, I don't think that means we're always walking in step with the Spirit. Sometimes we quench the Spirit. Sometimes we rely more on technique and giftedness and not charismatic gifts, but the charisma of leaders than we do the Spirit. But I do think we're much more intentional than we used to be, and, and I'm grateful for that. We'll have a whole week on the Holy Spirit soon and, and talk a little bit more about that. We have time for a couple more questions. Jeremy, were you raising your hand or were you scratching your head? All right.
your knowledge, what do um, Jews and Muslims have to say about like Genesis 18 or 19, where it says he appears to Abraham, like face to face, eating in his tent? Wouldn't that pose a pretty serious problem for them rejecting the idea of yeah, so what do what do our Jewish and or Muslim friends say about things like uh, God appearing to people in the Old Testament? I'm not an expert on what our Jewish and Muslim friends say, but I know that at least some of them say the same things that sometimes Christians who mean well but are nervous about saying too much about the Trinity in the Old Testament say. Uh, and they would say that those are angelic appearances. It's the angel of God, and it's God's representative speaking on behalf of God, and that's how we should interpret that language. I'm not at all clear that that's the dominant view among Jews or Muslims. Again, I'm not an expert on that at all. But I know that at least some of them, that's the argument that they make because both of those traditions are very comfortable with the idea that uh, not only are there angelic beings, but there is one or more angelic being that is like God's spokesperson who manifests as a man and talks with Old Testament patriarchs, but is not incarnate fully God and fully man. It's more like the appearance of a man. And, and we have angels appearing as men sometimes in scriptures and, and, so, and sometimes as weird creatures. So that's at least what some of them would say. One more. Man, it's the greatest truth in the universe. Oh, all right, Dan. I could tell you were trigger happy back there. You're just holding it back. I am. Uh, uh, this is such a, a challenging concept to yeah. for a mortal grasp. Mm hmm. Yeah. They go with the begotten language because it's echoing biblical language. I think it's safe to say they did not believe that begotten implied some sort of hierarchy in the Trinity if we mean by that that some members of the Trinity are lesser than the others. But we know that because they wrote exhaustively about that. So there's no doubt that there have been people who have read the Nicene Creed and said that's what it means. So this is not an unusual question. Folks have wrestled with the text of the Nicene Creed for millennia. But we know the men who wrote it didn't mean that, but you have to actually read the books they were writing that led to the Nicene Creed and that were defending the Nicene Creed to see that that's not what they meant. But this is still a live debate sometimes. So I have... Uh, very conservative friends who I respect very much who love Jesus who want to drive home a hierarchy in the Trinity but say, but that's okay because they're all fully divine. 
I have other friends who recoil against that idea and say, no, that's dangerous. I don't think it's dangerous teaching, but I don't think it's the best way to frame what's going on there. So there, there is mystery here. So even I've tried to give you kind of the mere Christianity, what do we believe, but there is no doubt I could bring some of my friends who teach at Southern Baptist and PCA and, and Bible Church seminaries in here, and you could listen in, and you know what they would do? Fight about some of those very things, about how, what's the best way to articulate it and this and that. There is mystery here. There's mystery here. Let me close this with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for sending the Son. Father and Son, thank You for sending the Spirit. Holy Spirit, thank You for pointing us to the Father through the Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.